Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 264 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is James Patrick Kelly. He's published over 100 short stories, which have received numerous awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Award. Together with John Kessel, he's edited anthologies such as Feeling Very Strange, The Slipstream Anthology, Rewired, The Post-Cyberpunk Anthology, and Digital Rapture, The Singularity Anthology. He also writes a column about the internet for Asimov's Magazine, and is on the faculty of the Stone Coast Creative Writing MFA program at the University of Southern Maine. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, Mother Go, and his new short story collection, The Promise of Space. And now, here's our interview with James Patrick Kelly. All right, so we're here with James Patrick Kelly. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, and so your new novel is called Mother Go. So how'd this book come about? Um, it's a long story. Uh, I guess the, the way to start is to say it's been a long time since I published a novel. Uh, I published several novels back uh, before the turn of the century. <laughs> oh, my God, that is ancient history. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought they were good. They got some attention. But one of the things that happened was a couple of them were what was called, what some people laughingly call fix-up novels. And that is to say that some of the pieces of those novels were published as stories um, before they were collected into the novel form. And so uh, my last uh, novel, uh, proper novel, uh, was called Wildlife, and it collected a bunch of stories, some of which are some of my best-known stories. Uh, but which, it, I, as I was writing the stories, I had designed it all to go together. And yeah, so, uh, so I published this fix up novel and it got some nice reviews. Um, but it also got reviews that said, Oh, well, this is just a fix up novel. And so like, Oh dear, that's, that's sort of not really a novel, is it? Um, so I, 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 I sort of vowed, to, I vowed to myself. I did not sort of vow. I vowed to myself <laughs> I would write a novel. My next novel would be a straight-up novel, no excerpts, no nothing. And so I made that vow, and 20-some years later, there was no novel. I had a novel that I started, uh, and, uh, and and it's odd. It's the only thing, a major work of mine that I've sort of not, that I've not finished, that I, I don't know if I've abandoned it or not, but I haven't worked on it in a long time. But as I was, uh, about 10 years ago, I was writing these stories and I wrote a story, got very well received. It was called Going Deep. It was in Best of the Year and it, it got a Nebula nomination. And, uh, it's ended up, uh, short of resolution. I had a resolution of, of the story, but there was more to come. And so I wrote another story using the same character, Mariska Volchkova. And that, uh, story, uh, got, was very well received. It was in all the best of the years. Uh, it was nominated for both of the awards. I don't have a winner from either one of those, but nonetheless, it was a well received story. And it got me thinking, well, that story wasn't really her, her Mariska's story was not yet concluded. And so I decided to break my vow and to write a fix up novel. And so that's how this came about. Um, there, uh, some fraction of this book has been published uh as short stories uh and i would say about 
oh, I don't know, maybe a third of it was previously published and the other two thirds is new to the book. Um, and so, uh, so that's how it came about. And it was sort of a struggle because I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. I, I, I realized I had said I wasn't going to do it anymore, but the stories were so compelling to me. I really wanted to, to explore and find out what happened to Mariska. So there it was. I, I wrote a novel, a fix up novel, a braided <laughs> novel, whatever you want to call it. Let's call it, we, and you know, and there has been a movement because lots of people have done, there's a long history of novels that were, had pieces published, uh, as independently as short stories. Some of our best novels, uh, Ted Sturgeon wrote one, uh, um, uh, more than human. Uh, Joe Haldeman wrote The Forever War. Uh, and, and not to mention the fact that Scott Card wrote Ender's Game first as a story. And so there's been, this is, this is not a new thing, but it does have sort of the whiff of, oh, I don't know what, what the critical response is. Oh, he's double dipping or, oh, it's not really a novel because it wasn't constructed as a novel. But, um, I decided just to, uh, push back against that and go and do what I want to do anyway. So that's what I've done. Yeah, no, I'll just say I, I loved this book. I thought it was fantastic. And I like fix-up novels in general. I mean, like you, you mentioned, I mean, um, I mean, Orson Scott Card had another one called The Worthing Saga that I read as a kid that was a fix-up novel. I mean, right. Foundation, um, Where yeah. Late the Sweet Bird Sang. I mean, I, I think it's really good in a way because, you know, because I read so many novels and so many of them have this very predictable um structure this very predictable climax and you know movement and everything and when you have something built out of these different stories it feels more like real life to me these these sort of weird um eddies and currents and um it just has a, a more more textured feel to it well thank you and you know what here's the other thing i mean so i can make an aesthetic argument in that it is a way to break the three-act formula you know, if you're writing a, a, a fix-up novel, lots of times those stories don't fall neatly into the three-act kind of structure that so many other books do. Not to say there's anything wrong with the three-act, but if you're looking for something that's a little bit different, I think a fix-up novel often delivers that kind of, of experience, reading experience. Yeah. Well, so, and another thing I thought was really interesting about this book is that it's, it's part of what, what almost feels like a movement, um, of books that are kind of acknowledging that it's not easy to get from one planet to another one. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, like Leviathan Wakes or, um, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312 or Aurora. Um, yep. you, did you see this as kind of part of that sort of, um, movement or whatever? Yeah. Well, so Stan Robinson is a really good friend of mine, and uh, and I've been following his career since forever, since we both basically broke in about the same time. And I was very taken with 2312. Um, and uh, I had already written uh, the moon story, the going the Mariska on the moon, the, her young years, youngest years. Um, and I was thinking about Mars. I had never written a Mars story. Uh, so... Um, 2312 was a big uh, influence. Then when I heard he was writing a Starship story, I said, uh-oh, I better not <laughs> read that. And I still have not read Aurora. Um, and, uh, but I, I so, <laughs> so I've skipped Aurora and I'm, I'm reading the New York, uh, Drown New York novel, actually. So, um, but yeah, I think this is, this is something that's, that's, you know, um, it's worth talking about. Uh, it, it, it is controversial. I mean, the bones of science fiction are based on 
space opera, faster than light travel, galactic empires, and that's all well and good. But, you know, uh, when you think seriously about some of this stuff, absent a faster than light wormhole uh, kind of, uh, of, of, of conceit, or more likely not a conceit, a possibility of hibernation, uh, there's really no way to get to the stars. And so all this galactic stuff is kind of fantasy. Oop, did I just say that? <laughs> no, <laughs> blip that out. No, 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 I mean that. I mean, I, I, and I, and I think that people who, who are seriously writing hard science fiction know that as well. So there's hand waving and, 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 and all of a sudden we're going faster than the speed of light. And, you know, in my book, I posit these imaginary, possibly imaginary builders who have built a one way, uh, a, a wormhole from our, from, from the Oort cloud to the center of a very, um, rich environment, stellar environment full of stars and planets, uh, a galaxy millions of light years away, uh, just sort of to get as a, uh, story engine to get this going. But I, I, I totally agree that, uh, I mean, there's no need for me to agree that the physics of it says it's a long way to Mars. It's an even longer way to the, to the, uh, to the asteroid belt. And oh my God, the Oort cloud is like possibly far away. So, um, this kind of science fiction, uh, seems to me anyway, for serious, serious writers who are, who are trying to play with it, with the, as Gregory Benford says, with the tennis net up, when they write hard science fiction, they're trying to play by the rules. It's really hard to take seriously some of that uh, faster-than-light stuff. Well, you mentioned hibernation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Mariska, because hibernation is a big part of her life. Mm -hmm. So Mariska is the clone of a starship uh, officer, a, a medical officer. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> I came up with sort of a hybrid, uh, star fairing, uh, technology. And that is, so our, uh, the edge of the wormhole is in the Oort cloud. And it's a long way, even with our, with the technology we have, uh, in, in the 150 years from now. Uh, so they cold sleep, uh, to get to the, uh, wormhole. Then there's a transit time within the wormhole. And then there's, more transit outside when they get to the other galaxy and go looking for planets to, to colonize. So uh, they have two kinds of hibernation technologies in my future. One of them is the kind that Mariska uses. Mariska and her, her uh, mother, Natalia, have been genetically tweaked. Uh, this is very much a post-human future, although it's a, certainly a mix of people who have been tweaked and people who are what we might call standard human. Uh, but so they've been tweaked so that they can hibernate more or less at will, although it's it's always dangerous. And, and hibernation is very dangerous in my future. Um, so, But they are the natural people to be the crew of a starship. Uh, and then there's also uh, uh, induced hibernation from, from standard people, people like you and I. Uh, and that's dangerous as well. Uh, they they uh, need to have elaborate technology and there is a small but not insignificant risk of brain damage when you when you hibernate, both for the natural hibernators or the genetically altered hibernators like Mariska and and for the standard hibernators uh, who use the hibernation 
cold sleep technology. So it's it's fraught with danger to do this, and and uh, you know. Lots of science fiction is about how, oh, the technology goes wrong. And so, and so it's not really interesting technology. But I think more interesting is that technology works just fine, but there is a risk in using it. And so this is sort of my, my idea, uh, behind hibernation. So Mariska has been cloned and, but mom, uh, uh, basically, uh, Never saw Mariska. She, she had Mariska conceived and then Mariska was brought to term in an artificial womb and brought up by, by a, a rented dad, a, a hired father. Uh, and so when, uh, Natalia comes back, uh, uh, from her last, uh, starship jaunt, which not incidentally, uh, not coincidentally has discovered a planet that's worth colonizing, uh, she comes back and says, hey, Mariska, we're going to the stars. Mariska's 14 years old, lives on the moon, has a boyfriend, is, is going to, you know, is, is going to high school. She's training to be a spacer, but not in any serious way. And all of a sudden, mom comes home and says, you're going to the stars. And like any um, teenager, especially a teenager who has no emotional connection to this person who is her heir scare quotes mother, but who in fact has never done anything for her other than provide her genetic pattern. She rebels and, and, and does some very, um, she basically runs away from home, but in a very science fictional way. Well, right. So you say that she was tweaked. So she's been tweaked with quote unquote ground squirrel trans genes. Yeah. You, and, that, and so, uh, you know, there is the, uh, we, we do know that there are hibernators, uh, and there are very successful hibernators. Now, uh, there's a little hand wavy uh, thing going on here where, I, where I'm positing that, you know, uh, uh, the, the same systems that allow a ground squirrel to hibernate may be transferable and, and useful for humans. Yeah. Um, the ground squirrel phenomenon and other hibernation phenomena exist in real life. And, and there is chemistry and biology that have been studied about how it works. So, but there's absolutely no way we, we know how to, uh, to do this so that, that to genetically modify humans. But on the other hand, you know, it's 150 years in the future. Give me a break. Um, this is, this is within the purview of science fiction extrapolation. Uh, and, and when it's proved wrong, I'll be long dead unless I'm hibernating <laughs> and on my way to the stars. I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, so, so that's the, that's the, the theory of it. And it's dangerous. Um, it's dangerous for the, to be used. And it also, uh, the story sort of glosses over this, but does, does not in the direction of some of the early, uh, genetically tweaked hibernators did not fare so well. Um, and so, and, and in some ways that this is what this story, part of what this story is about is who is it? Who is it? What kind of person is it who goes to space? Not just for the glory of it, but who is it? that is going to get on a starship and leave Earth forever to found a colony? Who is it that decides to have themselves tweaked or, or cloned or whatever in order to go to space? It's, it's not um, the, the argument of the book, I think, the argument of, that I would make is that it's a small fraction of people. So these are unique people who are risk takers and, uh, and not always 
the smart not they don't always take risks in the smartest way um and but but nonetheless and it 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 is a it is a question that is at the heart of this book for me anyway is so 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 how do we look at the explorers how do we look at the uh the extraordinary people are they are they better than us are they uh, super people uh are they foolish um and i think the the book asks these questions again and again and again like what is it that motivates these exceptional people and exceptional is not always a term of approbation sometimes exceptional people are not to be looked up to mm. I was curious because in the book, Mariska can just sort of will herself into hibernation. And I don't guess I never really thought about it before, but is that how it works with ground squirrels that they, they choose that it's time to hibernate now? Well, uh, I've done extensive research with the ground squirrel community and, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I I, I believe that it's a a seasonal thing so that they, uh, they are, you know, as the days get shorter, their, their biology clicks in and, and as they become more lethargic, uh, they use less, um, they lo- use less energy. And so their cells, uh, start, uh, manufacturing, uh, the, the hormones that allow them to do this. No, so I, I mean, I don't think that, you know, on July 4th, a squirrel, uh, would be freaked out by the fireworks going on will hibernate through to July 29th to make sure that they don't have to listen to it. I think that's, it's totally with beyond their, um, their control, their conscious control. Interesting. I just wanted to ask you about, there's another character who's been genetically tweaked in this book, Elon the Martian. Could you talk about him? So, yeah. So, uh, this is a genetic tweaking future, a post-human future. And so, uh, and here I'm tipping my hat to uh, the the late, great Fred Pohl. And uh, Elon has been genetically tweaked to survive for a brief time, but, but on the surface of Mars, but, but being able to survive on the surface of Mars is also a survival, uh, uh, attribute for living on Mars for a long time. So he is, of course, you know, I'm interrogating a, a, <laughs> a science fiction, uh, cliche because Alan is green. He's green. But he's green because he's photosynthetic. He has been tweaked so that he can, uh, receive energy from the sun and transform it, uh, to, so, uh, so for, for meta- metabolic, you know, purposes. And so, uh, he has other tweaks as well. Um, one of the tweaks he has is that in, in order for him to have enough surface area, photosynthetic surface area to actually make a difference. He has a, 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 a row of nodules on his shoulders that uh, when he is in sunlight and at rest, they expand, uh, blood rushes to them and they unfold. And so they're sort of like fleshy straps, uh, uh, sort of like, not quite like palm leaves, but they're, they're, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, notorious houseplant mother-in-law's tongue, Sansevieria, its long, strappy, sword-like, uh, leaves. That's what he, these things unfold from his, uh, from his shoulders and, 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 and become solar collectors for his photosynthetic, uh, uses. And so, 
The other thing about him that is uh, the tweak that's sort of a uh, – it's a PG-13 tweak, and that is that his uh, – he uh, – his a uh, his sexual organs are retracted into his body cavity unless he's having sex. Uh, and this is to protect him from uh, the radiation of, of Mars and from uh, from other things. And so – uh, as a result of this, the rumor uh, about Martian men is that they are somewhat less sexually aggressive. And if you want to get it on with a Martian guy, you got to you of whatever gender you're in, you're you're you are. You need to make the first move. They are they are receivers and not senders. Right now, when you say that's a nod to Fred Paul, is that a um, man plus? Is that the absolutely? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I remember reading. Well, gosh, you know. I remember reading Mad Plus when I was but a child, and I was like totally blown away by it. And and I had hadn't actually. I'm not sure, you know, my my, I have a pretty good sense of the history of science fiction, but I'm not sure exactly when it was that people started thinking about tweaking uh, the human body genetically. Uh, but Fred Pohl's Mad Plus like hit me right between the eyes, like holy smokes, that could happen. Uh, and, and the opening of that book, I, I actually reread it, uh, right before I decided to create Alan. Um, uh, uh, and, and Fred's take on it was, I mean, of course, Alan has a second generation Martian, so he hasn't had this, but Fred's take on it was that the, uh, genetic tweaking was no fun whatsoever. And, and also, uh, Fred's man plus guy, I forget his name now, uh, had, was a cyborg. In part, because he not only had had was tweaked, but he also had uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, devices that were helping him survive on on the surface of Mars. But you know, running around on the surface of Mars is kind of cool. Uh, we know what we what what we know that Fred didn't know when he wrote Man Plus is that you know you're looking like it's like you, running around on the surface of Mars is a little bit like running through Chernobyl. You know, but still, uh, it's a very cool thing. And so, um, it, 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 it manages to recapture some of the sense of wonder about Mars that, like, as, for instance, Bradbury's people go walk around in Mars on shorts. <laughs> well, of course, that's not going to happen. But even, you know, even people who wrote more seriously about the Martian environment imagined that we could walk around on the surface. And, and actually, the surface of Mars is, is, pretty much a killing zone for us. We'd have to be underground uh, or else altered or else incredibly shielded in order to survive there. Yeah. All right. So one thing I think is really, really interesting about this book is that it talks about the politics of launching a um, starship, right? Could yep. you talk about that? Yeah. Well, this is, uh, it's a truism that, that, the field doesn't acknowledge that very few, if any, science fiction writers have any idea of economics. Um, and so the whole idea that you could build a starship uh, that would use the most – in my future, we, we've, we've mastered the uh, technology of antimatter. But antimatter is, is not going to be cheap, no matter how – well, we develop our technology. It's going to be a cost-intensive product process to create antimatter. Uh, 
I, I'm not sure that any economies of scale are going to make it like, you know, like driving down to, hmm. the, to the local antimatter station and filling up your flying car with antimatter. That's never going to happen. And so, uh, so, uh, I, I sort of posit that in the future, the antimatter market is something like the oil market or the energy, the, the hydrocarbon, uh, market now. And so who controls the antimatter has huge, uh, political say. Well, uh, a bunch of, you know, sky and pie in the sky, you know, explorer types have decided to build this humongous starship, 500 people, uh, going to through the wormhole to, an, to colonize another planet and never come back. That's the expenditure of, I mean, it's like, it's like if you took, you know, 40, uh, international space stations and shot them through the wormhole and never got your money back from them. And so I think as uh, at the the Starship Natividad has been under construction for a long time uh and it's always been a controversial product project and so as it nears completion the uh the the the, the powers that control the antimatter which include several earth powers uh several uh several planet powers moon mars titan uh, belters, uh, and some habitats sort of say, oh, well, wait a minute. What are we getting for this again? Oh, sense of wonder. Uh, mankind must expand, but, but how do you put a dollar sign on that? And so as, as the uh, starship gets closer to being completed, there is a rebellion in the, basically the UN of the, my future, the, the world, uh, the Council of Ten, which sort of runs the show, saying, we're we're not going to send that starship away. That's that's like that's like taking you know a billion dollars and burning it. We're we're never going to see any return from that. It's not like we're going to see new technology. They're going to take the technology out of the solar system. All those smart people out of the solar system. The antimatter out of the. Why are we doing this? Somebody explain this to us again. And so um, the uh, conservatives, uh, I, I hesitate to call them Republicans, but the conservatives of the future have decided to kill the Starship program, except it's controversial. They can't just say, well, we spent all that money for nothing. So they concoct a scheme to to make it less likely that the crew and this colonists will want to go through the wormhole because it will become more dangerous, uh, less likely to succeed. And so they're sort of basically shortchanging the project in the hopes that it will fail. And, and so, yeah, so there's a, and, and so, and there's a, uh, obviously in any political system set in the soul system, there's going to be different factions. So the inner planets have, are sort of the fat cats sitting on the, the, the economy as it exists now and controlling the antimatter and the outer planets, the belters and, and Titan are more interested in expanding and, and also, Resting control of the antimatter, uh, um, economy from the inner planet. So there's a political factions going back and forth and the starship becomes the pawn between this, uh, this power struggle between the inner planets and the outer worlds. Yeah. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, this is definitely what would happen in this situation. And I mean, do you, do you see this is just going to be a, a huge problem if humanity ever launches? wants to launch a starship or is there anything we can like seems like we just need to get turn the whole planet into science fiction fans in order for anything like this to ever happen well you know 
it sort of leaves out the, uh, you know, it's a novel. My, my novel is a novel. I can't put everything in that I think. But one of the things I think is that the galactic cosmic radiation uh, of, of being exposed in a starship, even a well-shielded starship, is such that it probably is really a problem to send some uh some ship whether you're whether you're going faster than the speed of light somehow or more likely to be hibernating your way to the stars you're going to be exposed to galactic cosmic radiation for decades and that isn't good for you um so so my own thought is and and nobody wants this except cyberpunks and and wackos is that you know i i, I sort of believe in charlie strauss's idea that you know the future of space travel is we will download ourselves into Coke cans hmm. in size spaceships and shoot off, you know, uh, you know, to wherever we're going over, over incredibly long periods of time. And then when we get to where we're going, we will, our consciousnesses uploaded into these tiny little starships will, will do whatever we wanted to do when we get there. Now, you know, and, but the question, it begs the question, why are we going to the stars again? Um, you know, uh, some people say, uh, Stephen Hawking says we need to get off the planet because we're toasting this, this world. And so, uh, so that's why we're going to the Mars. That's why we're going, you know, that's why we need to go to the, to another solar system someday to find that earth because Mars is not earth. Mars needs to be terraformed to even come close to being, you know, the desert. Um, so that's what we need to do is need to get in starships and, and, and so humanity will continue to exist. And, and so, yeah, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm behind that, but is that really what people are, you know, Joe Sixpack, Joe, uh, Netflix is going to want to spend his money on to make sure that, you know, some future, 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 future generation is going to, uh, you know, have a happy life on some world going around Tau Sadie while, while the earth, you know, is, is in galactic climate. I mean, uh, uh, apocalyptic climate collapse. Uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know about, you know, what the rationale is for that, uh, that whole notion that we have to get on an arc and go elsewhere to save humanity. I'm not sure that that, I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. Well, but I mean, sooner or later, a, a gamma ray burster is going to fry the earth or the, in the long term, the sun's going to expand and fry the earth, right? So at some point, we need to get off the earth if humanity is going to survive. Sure, we do. But I mean, yeah, uh, but I mean, the thing is that we have sort of, and, and I think this, this, to come back to the book, the, the book is making the point that we're on the cusp in this book, as we are at the moment, of taking control of evolution and deciding you know, what is humanity? What does it mean to be human? I mean, that's, you know, I have a whole uh, collection of short stories coming out as well, which sort of interrogate this question. Well, what does it mean to be human? So uh, does it mean that you have to have two arms, two legs and eyes and ears and, and you have to be, you know, taller than five feet and shorter than seven feet? And or does it mean that you have a consciousness uh, and that you can appreciate Beethoven and Shakespeare and Mark Rothko, even if there's no body that's doing it, if it's all, if it's somehow consciousness, I think that the, uh, the idea that we need to get humanity off the planet so we can get to some Eden planet, 
which where our flesh bodies can live is is not paying attention to the kinds of things that are happening all around us, which may be not necessarily uh, in the near future, but inevitably will change who we are. And and so this whole notion of of what what a twenty what a person in twenty seventeen thinks is human may be sort of laughably archaic in in the time period of twenty one sixty five when this book takes place, much less in thirty one sixty five. You know, they may say. You had bodies then? <laughs> what was that about? You know, you, you had the same body? You died? Come on. What, what was those poor people back in 2017? What were they thinking? <laughs> well, right. And I definitely, I want to get to the short story collection in just a bit. I was just curious though about if, assuming we are going to have bodies colonizing planets, you say that the minimum viable population would be 462. I was just curious of how much science there is behind that. Some, but not a whole lot. Uh, you'll note that, uh, there are, uh, I forget how many, but a lot of, one of the things, okay. So one of the things about the, uh, the starship that, uh, that the colonists and the crew is that there are predominantly women. There's, uh, I believe it's 70% women, 30% men. So there are also, uh, at, Mariska's, one of Mariska's job is, is, is being in charge of the cold sleep team. And so she's in charge of the hibernators. She's also in charge of, of some, she's in charge of some fraction of the hibernators of the, of the animals that they're bringing. They're not, we're, we can't bring all the domestic animals that we, we currently use. But there also is, uh, I forget what it is, 10,000 straws of, uh, of sperm donation. So that, uh, some of the women, uh, would not, I mean, the, the whole idea of this, colony is not going to work under the uh you know the, the western tradition of one man one woman one family and kids it's going to be you know massive uh uh it's going to, the the women are going to have to bear some of the children and some of the children are going to come from sperm donation so yeah uh that's the fudge factor how many how long and how diverse uh, those sperm donations can make the rest of the population. Um, um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, we, the, the, uh, the research into the, into the first humans suggests that the tribe of, of Homo sapiens was, uh, had a catastrophic tragedy, uh, about whatever it was, 50,000 years ago and was decimated down to almost a handful and then regenerated from that so that's sort of my hand wavy answer whether it's true or not i don't know like i say it's science fiction well it also seems like if you're good enough at tweaking people's genes you don't need that much genetic diversity in your initial population because you can fix problems as they arise yeah that's there's that too uh i mean the this, the book doesn't overtly suggest that but clearly since they've been tweaking martians and and uh and uh uh, and hibernators, they have that technology to, to do it. It's probably pretty expensive. And it's probably, as I say, it's a probably dangerous. Nonetheless, once you get it done, those tweaks can be passed on uh, from generation to generation. Yeah. So another th interesting thing about this book is that it's audiobook only. Could you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I have a long... Back in, I've always loved reading my own work. Um, and I, uh, I, I used to, 
when I used to go, I, you, you probably have had this problem too. If you go in and do a public reading someplace, uh, or an appearance, people want to say, oh, I, we'd love to buy your book. Well, your book, what does your book cost? 25, 30, 40 dollars? You know, there's some people who will come in out to hear you who are interested, but not $30 <laughs> worth of interested in your career. So what I used to do was record stories and then Depending on the audience, if it was a if it was a small town library, I might actually give the CDs away of me reading a story, or if it was a more prosperous and larger venue, I might sell these CDs. And so, uh, so I had this huge uh, backlog of stories that I had recorded, um, and uh, when I uh, published uh, my my uh, my novella. Burn in 2005. It was from a small press, a wonderful small press called Tachyon. And I, I, as I got done with that book, I said, Oh my God, this is some of my best work. And it's going to be, it's going to be in a small press. I love Tachyon, but they're not going to publish how many copies. Uh, how are people going to find out about this? So I proposed to Jacob Wiseman that I would podcast, uh, that book on publication, a chapter a week for 14 weeks. Um, and he scratched his head and, but very generously agreed to that. And so that sort of made my career in many ways as a podcaster because I did that. And back in those days, because I had the technology from selling those CDs and making those CDs, uh, I was able to do a pretty good job and I'm a pretty good reader. So when I did that, uh, um, I, I, that particular book had 20,000 downloads because back then no, no award winning not that I'm a big name, but no middle name science fiction writer had ever done a podcast like that and given away something for free. Cory Doctorow was doing it. Uh, but anyway, I was, I mean, I was right on Cory's heels. So anyway, 20,000 people downloaded that book and uh, it was a huge success and it won the Nebula Award. And so at the Nebula Awards, a guy from Audible came up, Steve Felberg, and said, hey, kid, <laughs> he's probably the same age as I am, but he said, hey, we love that book. Uh, how would you like to have it on Audible? I said, Steve, I recorded that in my closet. You know, he said, no, nah, <laughs> it's fine. You know, it's, it's at least as good as some of the stuff we've got up there. Uh, and so he, uh, cut a deal where, um, in the aftermath of that, that award, uh, I recorded, uh, I recorded 52 of my stories myself and posted them on Audible. So, that was the start of a beautiful and long friendship with Audible. Uh, so they've also published two of my previous novels, my older novels, my middle-aged novels. And uh, so when Steve found out that I had was getting close to, uh, to finishing uh, Mother Go, he made a very attractive offer. And we went back and forth with my agent. And finally, we decided, yeah, okay, let's do this. It's, it probably isn't going to... You know, it, it's a deal where it's hard. It's a hard sell to do some for science fiction. I think it's it's a harder sell than it used used to be to sell a science fiction novel. And so the offer was there, and and the huge advantage was that we signed the contract, and six months later, this book is coming out. I mean, that's like the kind of turnaround uh, that an author wishes for. There's there's something painful about that interim between the time you sign the contract for a book and the time it comes out you can't even remember the book anymore anyway <laughs> so but the but the deal with audible was is that uh they had a six-month blackout on on print and so we have 
we have been shopping the print around and haven't yet uh, found a taker. So maybe that was a bad move, but I, I'm just a big Audible fan. They've been great for my career. And I, and I am, <laughs> I'm a total Audible head. I was a, I'm grandfathered into one of their best deals. I get two books a month for some, not to, I will not reveal how little <laughs> I pay because I started back in the day. I bought Audible stock before it got bought by Amazon. And so, um, I, I'm just in love with the, with the idea of, of Audible. I'm in love with the idea of audiobooks. Almost all my pleasure reading is, is Audible audiobooks. And so, um, that seemed like a good home for me. So if this deal didn't come about until you were pretty much done with this book, I guess you didn't write the book in any special different way, intending it for it to be an audio book no, only? Or? Absolutely not. Although uh, I, I did. <laughs> did I? Yeah, I, I, I recorded going deep, um, you know, myself. Um, so, but no, I, I didn't. You know, but this is the thing. Um, I, part of my process is that when I get ready to send a story off, one of the last rewrites is an audio rewrite. I mean, I just read it aloud and see how it sounds. And so, uh, uh, my, my work is, I think, pretty readable in general. Although there, obviously in this book, there's a couple of info dumps that, that are technical, but in general, I, I, I think my stuff is pretty, uh, amenable to audio reading because I, because that's part of how I, I decide whether the story's ready to go is how it sounds when I right before I send it off. Yeah, when I'm writing stuff, I always uh, I use text to speech software to read everything out loud to me as I'm working on it. Yeah, I, and I like that too. Uh, actually, uh, we we had this conversation a little bit. Uh, I, I teach at the Stone Coast Creative Writing MFA program, and uh, I often listen to the student manuscripts that way. Um, but it's my own voice that I, if I hear myself tripping or the, the, the robot doesn't trip over bad grammar <laughs> or, or, but my voice, I do when I'm reading along, I say, Oh my God, I, I use the word, uh, fallow three times in one paragraph. No, I got to get rid of that, you know? So, um, that's one of the things that, that, that I use the audio for. Yeah. I also heard you say in an interview that you had Paul Giamatti perform one of your stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So this is back in the distant past. There was a, a brief shining moment in my career, which, which I wish had gone on forever, <laughs> but it didn't happen. Um, uh, uh, sci-fi.com, back when it was sci-fi.com and not sci-fi, uh, back in the heady days when the internet seemed like the magical carpet ride to success and, and millions of dollars and fame, uh, they had a, a show called uh, Senior Theater. And so Senior Theater was audio plays written by science fiction writers. Uh, and with because sci-fi was downtown in New York, they would just like grab actors who were on Broadway or passing through. Because an audio play, uh, I did six of them. And, you know, I, I attended three or four of the shootings. It, they basically brought these people in for two days. And so Paul Giamatti did a, uh, uh, a, a story of mine, uh, Campbell Scott, uh, some, and, but there was a ton of Brian, Den not mine, but Brian Dennehy did him, uh, uh, Claire Bloom, John Torturo, all these people just said, you know, they, they call them in, they say, you know, we'll, we'll drop a, you know, a thousand dollars on you for you to walk and, and, and record for a day. And so lots of people did it. And so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of cool. 
So, so why did the internet not be, end up being the magic carpet ride to millions? Well, because they were paying Jim Kelly, you know, some very serious money for a short story, and they were paying Paul Giamatti, blah blah blah, and and the the suits, the bean counters at Sci-Fi said, "Wait a minute, is this actually getting us any more views, or or is this just this little you know enterprise that is?" You know, it's it's fun and, and and it's interesting, but it isn't actually paying off. And so the bean counters killed it off. Um, it wasn't pulling its weight, and so it went away. And so if you if you look up seeing your theater, uh, well, the other problem is is that and here's the problem. I wish that it was easily available, but we all, I mean, everyone involved there signed signed a a term contract, and so the term ran out. In order for them to continue to play these things. They would have to pay us all again or, or have us renegotiate the contract. And so it sort of went away. But if you, if you, uh, Google senior theater, it's, it's not in the dark net or anything. You can find it, but it's not official, but you can hear stories by, you know, Neil Gaiman and Jim Morrow, John Kessel, uh, Connie Willis. So, some of them are, are, uh, audio versions of actual stories and some of them are audio originals. And so, yeah, it was a cool thing, but it, it it didn't pay the rent, so it went away. Yeah. Yeah. There's a disappointing lack of philanthropy on the part of major corporations, I've found. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fine if it if it's if it's cheap. It doesn't cost them anything and they can put their brand on it. But you know, what the heck? They're we live in a capitalist society. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not if Tim Stanley Robinson has anything to do about it. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, well, so you mentioned your new short story collection, The Promise of Space. Why don't you say a bit about what's in this book? So um, uh, this is the – how many – I guess we're 16 or 14, I can't remember, uh, of my most recent stories. And, and so a couple of years ago, actually 2015, I had this humongous career retrospective uh, from a small press, Centipede Press, called Masters of Science Fiction, James Patrick Kelly. Um, and they were doing a bunch of, of, of science fiction masters. Um, so they're Fritz Leiber and, and, and it's an ongoing thing, but I was the first live guy. Everyone else was dead. So I was the first live guy they did. And so, and, and, you know, it's one thing when you do a Fritz Leiber or, or Ted Sturgeon or, or whatever, you know, they have some amazing stories, uh, but they're not writing anymore, but I'm still writing. And so, it it kind of like spooked me a little bit like there I was putting out my greatest hits album and so then I'd have to go on the oldies circuit and just sing think like a dinosaur a hundred times to uh you know a, 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 a read think like a dinosaur a thousand times to an an audience of aging baby boomers um so uh but I had enough uh stories new stories published since then to put out a new collection and so uh Sean Wallace at Prime approached me and said hey what do you think and so. I was sort of flattered and taken aback. Uh, I, I, I used, I had three other short story collections from Golden Griffin, which I loved that, that company, but they did a beautiful books, but they went out of business. And so, so I had these stories and, and I thought, yeah, uh, I'd love to do it. And so these are all new stories that they're sort of, uh, what I'm thinking of these days. And, and, and they're a, a mixed batch. Uh, one of the things that, uh, there's a new story. They insisted on a new story. Uh, and so I wrote this, this fun little story called Yukui. And, uh, 
as I started writing it, as I, as I signed the contract, I thought, oh man, I'm going to put one of my stories in, in a, in a collection no one's going to read because it's a small press. People are going to read it. Thousands <laughs> of people. Uh, uh, hundreds of people. No, thousands of people are going to read this book. But, but nonetheless, I thought, well, so I, I thought, oh, I just write this, this little, you know, airless, airy story. The more I wrote it, the more I happier, happier I got with it. So I'm, I'm very, I very, I really like that story. It's, it will be my newest story when it comes out, and uh, and it's it's something totally different from from other stuff I've done. But uh, I have some of, of my, you know, I've I've, I've had some luck uh, with best of the year anthologies. So several of the stories in this collection are have been in best of the year anthologies. I guess the most significant uh, story is uh, the last story. It's called The Last Judgment because it's part of, oh, no, not again. Yes, again. It's part of a fix-up novel <laughs> that I'm working on. Uh, and so I, I, I had a, uh, a, 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 a novella called Men Are Trouble in Asimov's, uh, and it's the, the conceit of it is that aliens come tomorrow and uh, decide to improve the human race by disappearing all the men. And so it's a feminist. It's not. A, it's not a post-apocalyptic, and it's not a utopia. It's a, it's kind of a mess, but it also is a a world in which, uh, which is very much like ours, except no men. And so the women have to reinvent everything. Uh, and so the Last Judgment is is a novella set in the same universe same actually the same character just a few years later after men are trouble and so there'll be one more of those someday which i'm working on at the moment and uh, so that will be my next fix-up novel maybe sometime in the in the uh uh 2018 2019 range and so yeah but um but the promise of space was was a story that actually is one of my favorite stories um uh it got you know, it's, it's been, um, it's been anthologized in the best of the years. Uh, and it's told entirely in dialogue, uh, which was a, which was a, um, a challenge, which I, which I've done before, but I really, I really had a lot of fun with it. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it, it was published in Clark's World and well published indeed. And, uh, but if you, if you know the Clark's World, uh, business model is that all their stories are, are read by Kate Baker. And so, so there's an audio version of it as well. And so, uh, but Kate and I are friends and, and I proposed to her that we would, it was at the World Con in San Antonio that we decided for my reading, I got, had a reading at the World Con, I would invite her in and we would read that story. It's a two person story, a, a astronaut and a dying astronaut and his wife are having a conversation over time. And so, uh, Kate and I read that story. It's a very poignant, it has a sort of sad ending. And so we read that story at, at, um, at San Antonio with the idea that we would record it for, for Clark's World. So that when the story came out, it would be the audio version. Well, uh, we had, Kate gave a great performance and, and I did my usual hammy James T. Kirk impersonation. But the problem was that in the next room, there was some panel that was funny. And so the wild sound totally ruined it. So, but, uh, after we, after we went back home, I recorded my part and sent it to Kate and she recorded her part and in interleaving it because, uh, like I say, it's a conversation. And, uh, and that came out. It's, it's really a beautiful reading. In some ways, 
if, if I was going to recommend anyone look at that story, not that it's not a great story in my collection, The Promise of Space, but the audio of that is really very, very touching and very, very, uh, it's one of my favorite audio projects. And not, you know, like I said, I've done 52 of my own stories. It's my, probably my favorite audio project of all time. Well, speaking of James T. Kirk, in that story, you predict that William Shatner will die in 2023? <laughs> oh, did I? I just picked a number out of the hat, Jim. <laughs> Kirk. You also have... Shatner. Oh, you also have Ray Kurzweil being uploaded. I was just curious how you um, feel about making predictions that could potentially be disproven really quickly um, if, you know, in in the future like that. Sure. <laughs> so. Dipping back into the far past, uh, so I, uh, the, I mentioned that I wrote a book called Wildlife. Uh, so that was a fix-up novel of stories that were written in the in the nineties, and uh, well, the first ones were written in the nineties, and 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 by the time you know that that came out, uh, the Soviet Union still existed, and so uh, when I did the fix-up of it, I had to change all the global politics because. You know, in whatever, 1989, 1991, I was thinking there'd always be a Soviet Union, of course, and the Soviet Union plays a part in it. So you can't, the thing is, science fiction has a half-life, and the longer a science fiction story exists, the more it devolves into fantasy. Um, you know, that's why, you know, you could sort of squint and look at Ray Bradbury's Mars novels, Mars stories, and say, well, that's sort of science fiction. They, they didn't really know what was going on there. Uh, they had a pretty good idea, but nonetheless. But you can only read the Mars books, Bradbury's Mars, as fantasy, in the same way that, you know, you know, <laughs> one of the most famous lines in science fiction is the opening line of Neuromancer. The sky was turned, the sky was the color of a television turned to no channel. And what Gibson meant to say there was that it was kind of gray. But I'm sorry, when your color, when your digital television is turned to no channel, it's blue. <laughs> it's not, it's not that gray thing that, you know, it's not, it's not static. And so whenever we write science fiction, especially near future science fiction, we are just basically asking for it to, you know, to go past its sell by date. And that's just sort of the, the deal we've got. Uh, it, it occurred to me, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially since I did that retrospective about how stories age. I mean, some stories age badly because the technology is different. You know, they're still talking, they're still having giant computers, uh, you know, in, you know, in the far, on starships in the far distant future. You know, poor Isaac Asimov's computers of, of some of his classic stories are huge. Same with, with, uh, with Clark. So, some age because the technology changes, and some age because because uh, mores and the culture changes, and so some of the uh, golden age science fiction, as as you well know, uh, does not bear close scrutiny when it comes to gender politics or race politics, and so um, so it, it, it's a thing where we are we're doomed probably to be out of date at some point. That's sort of the deal that we we're, we're dealt and. I feel like a lot of authors would keep things vague. You know, they would be intentionally vague about the dates and real people and stuff in order to extend that half-life a little bit. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's one of the things about, you know, Cordwainer Smith is, wow, you know, he still reads great, uh, because who knows when that took place, you know. But yeah, I, I take your point. Um, but you know, you're in the moment. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm swimming in the popular culture sea. And so I want to touch on as much as I can for the people who are reading it at the moment I'm reading it, I'm writing it. You know, I, I realize I may be shortchanging or turning off writers, readers 30, 40 years in the future, but I sort of feel a, a, an obligation to try to reflect the world that I see. Of course, I, you know, you're writing science fiction, so it's a, oh yeah, it's in the future. But, but the fact of the matter is we have a, a sort of, I mean, one of the things I often play with is we have a sort of a, a assumption implicit assumption that things will always stay the same we are as they are. And people always know who Elvis was or who the Beatles were or, but you know, how many people know who Benny Goodman is or, you know, Fats Waller. I mean, these are things that the, 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 the iconic, hard to imagine anyone would ever forget people are evanescent as, as, as we are. And so I think we can only take a snapshot of the culture we're in. And, 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 and let the future folks look at their footnotes or hyperlinks <laughs> to find out what the hell we were talking about. I think that's interesting that with the fix ups, you are able to go back and tweak the history to make it more, um, current. Um, but then you, you kind of risk the, um, the George Lucas prequels phenomenon, right? Where people have been attached to the version that they, um, you know, first encountered and really resent having you go and fiddle with it. Yeah. Well, and let me tell you that the the Masters of Science Fiction, James Patrick Kelly uh, retrospective collection, was a huge problem for me because they wanted a retrospective collection. So they wanted some of the early crappy <laughs> stories, uh, and they wanted them the way they, you know. I, so I thought, well, I don't want to publish that. I mean, somebody buys this book, they're going to want to think that the guy who wrote it is a master of science fiction. That guy who wrote those early stories. He was a apprentice. He was doing apprentice work back then. But they wanted to say, oh, yeah, well, he got better or this was his early, you know, whatever. This, these were his early concerns. But and so I, 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 I agonized over whether I should rewrite those stories to fix them, you know, at least the technology. And finally, I said, you know, look, um, I'm just I, I have to respect that 23, 27, 30 year old guy. He did his best and his stories should be, you know, in the book with my stories too. Uh, but you know, it's a different thing when you're doing a novel and you know that readers, uh, are going to like, not that they'll write you letters, but that they'll be sort of thrown out of the book. If you're calling, you know, you're saying that the Soviet Union exists in 2017, they say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and that guy doesn't know anything. And so slam the book against the wall. So there, there's a there's a, a a compromise you have to make, I think, when you're doing that kind of thing. Well, actually, speaking of the early stages of your career in the um, afterward to the promise of space, you say, um, consider that back in the early 80s, I was called a humanist by my friends, the cyberpunks. I guess you, you touched on that a little bit, but could you just talk about what was going on with that stuff? Oh, but this is the this is an ancient uh, and, and to some some extent, the, the 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 conflict between the humanists and the cyberpunks is a urban legend, but to 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 put it uh succinctly um there were a bunch of people all the same age uh who sort of came up at the same time and they're looking at each other across the tables of content and saying eh, what kind of work is he doing what kind of work is is she doing um and 
one group of them, uh, uh, mostly mostly quarterbacked by uh, Bruce Sterling, uh, but certainly Bill Gibson and Lou Shiner and Pat Gattigan. Not Pat Gattigan so much, although she was dragooned into being a <laughs> cyberpunk. Uh, John Shirley were saying, oh, man, those guys over there, they're writing the same old stuff that, you know, Damon Knight wrote and, you know, Kate Wilhelm. It's, we got to have more modern computery, you know, hackery kind of science fiction. So on the other side was where people like Stan Robinson and Connie Willis and John Kessel and me and uh, uh, Nancy Kress. I mean, uh, Michael Swanwick certainly was one of – was what I would call a humanist. But he sort of like crystallized this moment by writing a, a, an essay, which was very – which got a lot of uh, attention called The uh, User's Guide to the Postmoderns. And he sort of set this – this conflict up. He sort of said, well, these guys over here, Bruce Sterling says this thing and Stan Robinson says this thing. Well, I was kind of a bridge person because Bruce and I went to, to, to Clarion together. So, I mean, in some ways, Bruce is my oldest writing friend. And so when Bruce started like making this noise, I thought, oh, I can, I can write like Bruce. And so I wrote a bunch of stories that were sort of satirizing, uh, the cyberpunks. I mean, my my greatest achievement of that mode was I wrote a story called Rat, uh, which which got a lot of attention. It got a lot of award nominations. Didn't win anything. Uh, it got into Ursula Guin's uh, uh, Norton Book of Science Fiction, and basically, it's it's about a a drug dealing rat, uh, literally <laughs> a rat. It's sort of like Stuart Little on drugs, uh, and he's a cyberpunk, but but. He's also a metaphor because he's a rat. He's, he's a rat. He, he, he is selfish and, 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 uh, materialistic and, uh, and, and not thinking about anything else but himself. And, and he's a rat. So in the end, he gets killed. Uh, and so, but, but they love that story. The, the, you know, rat was a, a real cyberpunk story. And so, uh, and so, uh, lots of my early, um, cyberpunky stories were sort of like tweaking the cyberpunk saying, come on, guys, are you, are you serious about this? But uh, as, as time went on, I was persuaded, certainly persuaded by their fixation on two things, uh, the cybernetic, uh, this, this, the, uh, computer revolution, the digital revolution and the, uh, the trend toward, uh, transhumanism. So lots of cyberpunks are altering themselves. They're, they're altering themselves sometimes biologically, sometimes, you know, mechanically, sometimes, you know, as, as cyborgs. And, and I, I think they were onto something and that, that was something worth paying attention to, as certainly was the digital revolution, which certainly changed everything. And so before very long, you know, with a few notable exceptions, all the cyberpunks and all the humanists, like, were pals, workshopping together, talking about, you know, stuff. My friend John Kessel, who was a proto-humanist, and uh, my friend Lou Shiner, both live in Raleigh, North Carolina. They workshopped together, you know, lo these many years later. And and so um, so the, the, the war uh, between the cyberpunks and the humanists was, was more in the, in the, uh, was more in the, in the propaganda than in the reality, than in reality. Right, because, I mean, it seems like if you look at Hollywood science fiction like Steven Spielberg or something, it always has this very conservative 
worldview where like what really matters is love and family and right. the human spirit is special and it seems to me that science fiction at its best is questioning all that stuff and saying you know are we going to have the same sort of families in the future uh could you just rewrite you know your brain and it would completely change your personality and there's nothing special about your spirit that would prevent that from happening things like that right uh, Bruce used to have Bruce would come to Sycamore Hill, the Sycamore Hill Writers Workshop, which was a bunch of of young ambitious writers. Uh, it still goes on, but back in the day, you know, Bruce and Karen Fowler and uh, uh, Maureen McHugh and John Kessel and Walter John Williams, all these people. And Bruce used to have a, a thing that actually stuck with me. He said one of the things that science fiction needs to do is burn the motherhood statement. And what I took that to mean was. You know, motherhood is good, right? That it's, it's, isn't that like written in the, you know, fabric of the universe? But when you start questioning the basic assumptions, which I think some of the thrust of Western culture, Western technological culture is questioning some of the basic assumptions. When you start burning the motherhood statement and seeing what's left, uh, it leads to some very interesting speculation about what life might be like, like, life in the future. Burning the motherhood statement is to me sort of goes to the idea that most people, most people, I believe, would regard, you know, having your brain uploaded into a computer with, with disgust or horror. Uh, but consider the alternative. <laughs> the alternative is that you're dead. Uh, and so, and if in fact you were uploaded into a computer, yeah, it wouldn't be you exactly because you wouldn't have a body, but it would be some fraction of you, and maybe people would be happy with that. And so when you start questioning the assumptions of what it means to be human or what's important about being human uh, with that sort of ruthless, uh, you know, uh, ethical uh cleansing away all the assumptions about, you know, what, what is really important, uh, you get to some interesting and, 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 and I think telling speculation about, if not where we're going, at least where we need to avoid going. Well, right. Like in your story, Declaration, it's about some teenagers who are advocating for their right to stay in virtual reality permanently and not be forced to spend any time out of it. Yep. And that, that's certainly, you know, thank you. <laughs> that's exactly what that story is about. That story is about a couple of things. That story is about, you know, the, uh, probably a good thing, but the widespread, uh, notion that we shouldn't let our kids play too many video games because they should be out in the sun, you know, basking and swimming and jumping rope and playing hopscotch and not, you know, playing Call of Duty or, you know, whatever, uh, Skyrim. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I agree. That's probably right for us. Maybe, maybe in the future, not so much. Uh, because, uh, you know, it may be a viable kind of escape for people who have no other economic way to get out of what could be a very drudge, drudgery, the drudgery of their lives and the, and the horror of, of their lives. But in declaration, one of the characters is, um, is, is handicapped, is disabled. And so in virtuality, he is able to do things that he can't do in, in, in meat space in real life. And so, so why should we tell him 
that he shouldn't be in virtuality all the time when he's happier in virtuality than he is suffering in his in his body. He suffered from a, a industrial accident, I believe. I can't remember what I did. Something like that, though. He, he's in pain, but when he's in virtuality, he's not in in a in a crumpled body, and he's not and he's not in pain. So it's a, ter- a terrorist attack, wasn't it? A- yeah. Oh, that's right, a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, yeah, so that's the argument I make there. Um, some people said, "Oh, well, he's just playing the whole time," and I didn't. You know, I had it in the back of my mind he was actually doing stuff. He wasn't just playing; he was like inventing stuff. But I never actually got that into the story. If I was to rewrite that story, which I'm not going to, but if I do another iteration of that idea, I would be much more interested in what it's like to actually live in that virtual world. Uh, if to escape from our world, what what would people be doing? I don't think they would be just playing. They'd be doing other stuff. They'd be creating stuff. They'd be Maybe they'd be playing the stock market or whatever. They they'd have jobs in in virtuality, and th- and there'd be nothing wrong with that. One point I thought was really interesting that these um, teenagers make is that they're not consuming resources, uh, natural resources, by being in virtual reality at the same rate as people who are like owning houses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a. They make a good argument because they're making my argument. You know, that's another thing about this is that, you know, in a material world, uh, there, you, you, we are programmed to seek pleasure, to seek happiness, to seek more, basically. Uh, when you get something, you're happy for a while, but then you're not. I mean, you, you, that happiness goes away. Uh, and so it's so then you want something else. So, so you 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 get a new bike, uh, and you ride it for a while. That's great. It's super duper. But you know, I could have had that other bike. And so then, yeah, okay, I'll get that bike. And so, but this consuming, consuming, consuming uh, ethic uh, is is croaking the planet. And so, in virtuality, it's not going to cost you anything to get a better bike or to get a better house or to get a whatever a better boyfriend. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, uh, y- y- those things are, uh, you know, it- it's a scarcity-free uh, society in in virtuality, and and we 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 are we are destroying the planet, trying to get more and more and more to to fulfill the things that we think we want to to get whatever happiness we're chasing. Yeah. I was also really curious about this in your story, One Sister, Two Sister, Three. There's this section about religious experience and how you would um, induce it in people. Um, could you right. talk about sort of the research behind that? Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's a that's a, a sub theme. So I was I was uh, I went to Catholic school, K through college. And so, uh, I have a lot of, of, um, I'm, I'm still working through that religious experience from, from all those years. I, I, I am not a believer at the moment. Uh, I probably will never be a believer, but I'm, I'm very interested in the religious experience. And so, um, uh, and so w- one of the things that, uh, I was looking at was, I did this research a while ago, but, but there is, uh, there has been research into, uh, what parts of the brain might be, you know, neurologists are interested. Well, where does this religious impulse come from? Where does God live in the brain? And so they've been trying to explore 
what by stimulating different parts of the brain to see whether uh, they can create uh, or they create the experience of, of uh, a religious experience or the experience of of uh, communing with God. And so they they you know poked and prodded and and stimulated lots of different parts of the brain. And you can look this up because this is actual uh, research that is done. And and ultimately they decided there is no one part of the brain. You know. People said, oh, well, if, if we knew where this part of the brain was, if we knew what neurons to, to stimulate, then we'd understand where religion comes from. But, uh, but in fact, uh, it's not a stimulation thing that they, now that, now people think there's not one part of the brain that needs to be stimulated. It is that all parts of the brain need to be dampened. And so in that moment, it's possible that there'll be this, this, this experience of transcendence, whether you call it God or, or, or some other mystical, you know, experience. But, you know, the materialist view is, uh, which is a science, which in, in general, I believe, is a science fiction view. And that is that the brain is a, uh, is a, is a system that can be, that all of human experience exists in the brain. Uh, what what is not in the brain is not human. Uh, there is no higher power. There's no soul, um, and so uh, so if we're going to figure out why why there is religion, it has to be someplace. It has to be some brain function which is worth looking for. And so people are still at it, uh, and and with no notable success. Although you know they have concocted di- different explanations for what what it might be about, but they really don't know. Well, right. The way I'm, I'm, I read it in your story was that basically we have this sense of identity, which I think we know from neuroscience is sort of a simulation or an illusion. Right. And mm-hmm. when that gets messed with or suppressed, then that's when you sort of start to feel like you're one with the universe, when your sense of identity is kind of being tamped down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of so uh, fun fact about James Patrick Kelly. I'm a meditator. Uh, so I meditate twice a day. And and I, I very rarely <laughs> achieve nirvana, but I do <laughs> necessary. I, I do when I'm having a very good meditation, sort of disappear. Uh, and and uh, so the thoughts that I have are sort of like clouds passing over that they don't really mean anything. And that's sort of one of the goals of of anyway my meditation practice, uh, not to be involved with your own thoughts, to sort of watch your thoughts happen. And so. In that way, you can sort of sense that that some of the things that you think are important in your life are actually, if you stand back and watch them, you could just see that they're just neurons firing. And so, um, so yeah, uh, what you said. <laughs> does does meditation in any way help you come up with story ideas, or is that kind of the opposite of coming up with story ideas? Oh, it's the hardest thing. So, so here's the deal. I I am a. a I am a headlight writer, and, and so I depend on my subconscious to plot my stories. And so it often happens that I, when I'm getting close to the end of a story or a novel, I will wake up in the middle of the night and write, you know, three pages of stuff that just came to me in the middle of the night. And it's really hard because meditation puts me in that same, you know, my subconscious, you know, Lights up when I meditate. And so all of a sudden I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm watching my thoughts pass. I'm watching my thoughts. Oh my God. That's the end of the story. Right <laughs> and, and then I, then I'm in the struggle. Is that really the end of the story? Or 
am I just like trying not to meditate? Because that, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you know, you, your mind will try to stop your meditation. Sometimes though, I just have to stop the freaking meditation and write that I did now because it's brilliant or it's, you know, the subconscious has knitted together a bunch of disparate things that exist in the story that, and say, that's why the gun is on the mantelpiece in scene three. It's got to be used to kill the alien in the last scene. Oh yeah, of course. And so, um, but meditation is very good for that, except it's very annoying for that. Um, and it, and those moments are not ubiquitous. They're almost always, uh, at the end of a project where I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of like, I'm trying to wrap things up. I'm trying to understand what the thematic content of the story is. And, and these little midnight, you know, messages or meditation messages come to me and, and, and I use them as sometimes you write those things down the next morning. They don't make any sense or you can't read your writing, but mostly they don't, they're, they're not as good as you thought they are. But I would say 60 to 70% of them go straight into the stories. Actually, speaking of guns on mantelpieces, you've got some guns on the mantelpiece in um, the Last Judgment story you mentioned, where it's the world without men. Yeah, and you say that that's the the guns are only on mantelpieces because women just don't really have an interest yeah. in having guns. I yeah. was just curious how um, if you think that's what would actually happen in a world without men. Um, I think so, and one of the reasons why. It's not only that they don't want to have guns, it is that there was revulsion about, so when the, all the men disappeared, the society collapsed, uh, and the aliens who were trying to improve society realized they made a horrible mistake because some women used the guns that were, many guns that were extant to kill each other, to kill themselves. Suicide rates were, were, were astonishingly high. Uh, and so there's sort of been a revulsion against guns only because, uh, because of that ho- horrific, you know, uh, the, the, the crazy time is called, which is basically a kind of holocaust of women where, where even though all the men disappeared, another 30% of the women died in suicide or, 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 or gunfights and stuff like that. So that's sort of the idea there. But I do, I do think that, you know, my gun-toting women friends are going to, you know, Send me an email on this one, but I do think in general that guns are a guy thing, and it would be easier for um, it would be easier for women to eschew firearms than it would be for for men. I guess I've I've only read this story. I haven't read the other sort of stories in this sequence. But is your society? Do you, do you sort of see that for the most part that the women would just kind of fill all the niches left behind by the men disappearing or is this society dramatically different than our society i think so this is the thing this is the this is the uh, $64,000 question here um i i think that what's happened in this society is that women are are yes society as that they grew up in uh, the, the first, the, the grannies, as I call them, the people who were alive when the men disappeared, the who still remember men are still shaping the society. And so, uh, because of that, there are, there are, uh, there are, are functions that society has, that culture has called for that men normally did or, or, or typically did, whether that was right or not, uh, that, that women now are migrating to do. So, I mean, not to put to find a point on it, this is a hard-boiled PI uh, uh, novel, 
uh, stories, the stories are, will be a novel. Uh, and so this is a very Raymond Chandler-esque, uh, you know, hard-bitten, hard-boiled woman who solves, who solves murders. Uh, not to say that there can't be, certainly there's some amazing, uh, women detective writers writing great women's detective fiction or detection, detective fiction with women, you know, detectives. Um, but, but the other thing is, is that, uh, uh, there are, um, I think one of the things that's going on in this story that, uh, that is going to be, um, that is part of the, the final novella. So in this story, uh, there have, uh, uh, there are, there's a lot of trans, trans women becoming trans men. And, and so, uh, what is that about? And, and why is there more, this is the story posits that there'd be more of them than there are in, in our society. So why is that? Uh, uh, but in the, in the final book, uh, the, the, uh, aliens, uh, just realize their mistake and they start allowing, uh, boys to be born. And so the third novella is about what would boys be like brought up in a society where women, uh, were, were the dominant gender. Uh, and so that's sort of what kind of men would those boys become? And so that's sort of the question I'm asking in, in the third book because, uh, it, it, you know the 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 way the book is structured is that the women's society really can't exist uh, without alien the aliens propping them up. The aliens are propping them up by they've created these bots to sort of you know do all the stuff that, that some to sort of fill up the functions of, of of the economy that that needed to be done in order for the economy to work and uh, and they're also seeding the women. So that they're having, uh, girl babies so that the population doesn't decline because there's, there's, there is some, but not extensive, uh, in vitro fertilization that the women are doing to the women. Uh, but, but there's not enough to replace the population. So, so I didn't want that. I did. That's not a sustainable, shall we say, uh, idea. At least for me, I wanted to get to a point where humanity, femininity, the, the women and the men, women and the boys who are to come would reestablish a new society. What would that society be like? And that's where the, the book is headed in that third novella, which I'm, I'm probably about 20,000 words into 40,000 word novella. You say in the afterword that writing these stories have, quote, uh, led you to confront lifelong prejudices about gender identity? Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the things that, uh, that, Thinking about thinking yourself into other people's heads uh, changes the way you think about people who aren't you. And so it's been a lifelong process of, first of all, learning to think about what women, writing convincing women characters, female characters, women characters, uh, writing convincing women has been sort of a uh, on my agenda for the last 20, 30 years. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really know a whole lot of people intimately who are trans. And so I, I have some, uh, my daughter, uh, Maura Kelly is a professor of, uh, sociology at Portland State University. And she's very active in the LGBT community. Um, and so I've met 
lots of our friends and 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 I have actually bounced some of these stories off some of uh some of our friends who are in the who are some people who are trans and um and so I, I'm I'm continuing on in that sort of process of sort of exploring explore you know I don't want to do cultural appropriation in in this because I understand that that's a problem but I also uh, am very interested in in it because part of the science fiction agenda as I've been saying in other stories is that we can mess with our bodies uh, you know aside from reassigning gender we may be reassigning brain states or body parts and stuff like that so this is this is part of it seems to me what the future is about and so it's worth interrogating some of the assumptions that that I have and that the society has about about what it's like to be different what but about the other and and how do we how do we uh, accommodate the other when they have needs that are different than ours yeah i also i just really want to ask you about this story the chimp of the pope so it looks like it <laughs> appeared in a robert silverberg tribute anthology <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and, well, and 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 of course, Silverberg's famous story is the Pope with the Chimps. Um, and so, you know, it came from the the sort of wacky title, and then it uh, it evolved into some of my thinking about the singularity. Um, uh, and and so, it seems to me, and I've written about this several times. Uh, Essays, uh, you know, the, the logical, um, outcome of the cyberpunk, uh, technology is the singularity. The, 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 the closer we get to a, uh, to surfing the interwebs, to, to, to putting ourselves into cyberspace, the more likely we are to actually get to this sort of idea that uh, well, we could all live in cyberspace. Well, we could all live in, as they do in declaration in, in virtuality. And, and then what do we need to meet for? And then who are we? And so, and so in the Pope of the Chimps, uh, there's a anthropologists who are looking at a chip society, uh, um, and they realize that, uh, that, that, that the chimps have sort of formed a religion. Um, and in, in, the chip of the popes, all the, uh, the, the, the humans have, most of the humans have, have uploaded and disappeared and, and, and those remaining don't really know what happened to them. But they, the, before the, the humanity disappeared into the singularity, they up, uh, they upgraded the chimps. So the chimps now are actually running a, uh, a chimp culture. And so they are also looking for uh, they are observing the remaining uh, humans who also seem to be, be have forming a new religion, the religion of the singularity, uh, and the, the 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 popes are uh, in the in my story are are these people who are um, who believe they're they're delusional. And they're delusional because they were left behind by humanity. And then all of a sudden, a, a somebody who claims to be a real pope comes along and says, well, you, you, you people who, who are, have these delusions of grandeur, you actually are great people. You are the humans and, and there is a religion. It's the religion of the singularity. And so, um, and so we should, we should pay attention to it, which means to the chimps that, that maybe the, the, 
the few remnants of humans may come back and take their world back when so there's a there's a culture war there between the two yeah so other than just the 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 premise did you um try to make the story silverbergian in in any other way um no not really uh it, it, bob silverberg and i uh i love bob silverberg he's great um he is uh he's He's a, a touchstone for my career. When I was coming up, you know, we used to say, Kessel and I used to say, for instance, like, well, if we had anyone's career, we want Bob Silverberg's career. Because, you know, the man uh, is not afraid to write science fiction. He's not a right to write, afraid to write literary fiction. He's not afraid to write what might, some people might call blasphemous fiction. He, he's, he'll do anything. Um, and, and he's not tied down by... The, uh, the constraints of, it, 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 he, he expands the, the genre instead of being limited by it. He pushes out against the, the edges of it and makes it bigger. So we were, we were totally into it. And so uh, one of the things I think that Bob Silverberg is very interested in is this whole re- notion of religion and, and how religion functions in society. And so if there's anything Silverberging about it, aside from the, the twist on the title, it is, it's, it's very, it's thinking very hard about religion and 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 how religion works its way into our our uh, relations with one another do you know silverberg well because i know he goes to all the conventions (laughs) i know bob fairly well i should probably stop telling this story but i'm going anyway (laughs) uh so i was a huge bob silver robert silverberg fanboy and the first time I ever actually met him in person was on a panel. And so, uh, I was probably 30 something, not well, published, but not well published. And so I show up for this panel and as was my want in those days, I, I want to sit at the end and maybe sort of hunker down so no one will see me because I don't really <laughs> have a whole lot to say. And so, so I sat one from the end and then Silverberg came in at the very end and sat down right next to me. Right next to me, Bob Silver, holy smokes. It's like, you know, my idol. And so, so I, I, I summoned up my courage to say, well, uh, Mr. Silverberg, I, you know, I said something like, I'm one of your biggest fans. And he says, well, well, if you know Bob Silverberg, he's a very urbane and, and calm and, and very, uh, very smart person. So he said, well, that's, that's very nice. That's very nice. Yeah, thank you. Which is a super thing to say, by the way, if you ever come up to me, don't tell me I'm one of your favorite authors, even if I am. Tell me something about one of the stories. I got nothing. There's no place to go when you say, "Oh, I'm I'm your biggest fan. You're one of my favorite authors." What am, what is the author supposed to say next? So Silverberg handled it with a plum. So I, so then I but you know the panel hasn't started and I'm sitting next to Silverberg. I should say something. I said, "Well, uh, Mr. Silverberg, I, I should tell you that I bought your book, The Man in the Maze, back in 19 whatever 73, whatever it was. Um, with my it was the first book I ever bought." With my own, uh, on my own, with my allowance, when I was eleven, and he he looked at me, he said, "Jim, I will thank you never to mention this again." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I've told this story a gajillion times, but but so I, I so now I'm now I'm embarrassed. Now I'm embarrassed, but I I I I, I saved the day because. Uh, the Man in the Maze is a very interesting book uh, about uh, te- telepathy, and it's about a guy who has been captured by aliens 
and made into a telepath so they could talk to them, so they could talk to humans. But he can't stop broadcasting. So whatever, wherever he goes, all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his subconscious, all, the ugliness of him projects. And so he's so horrifically, uh, it's, it's, it's so horrifies people that they strand this guy in the maze, in a maze. So people won't have to listen to his thoughts broadcasting all the time. And, uh, and so then later on, uh, the aliens come back. And so they have to fetch him out of the maze so they can talk to the aliens. Well, I told Bob that I had realized in college that the man in the maze was a take on the legend of Philoctetes. And, uh, Philoctetes was one of the Greeks who went on the, uh, to the Trojan Wars. And he did something bad. And so the gods, uh, punished him by making him stink. And so, he stunk so bad that the Greeks abandoned him on an island. They cast him away. And they got to, later on when they're fighting Troy, there was a prophecy that says, uh, you will never conquer Troy until you bring the Philoctetes to Troy. And so they, the Agamemnon says Ulysses back to the island to fetch Philoctetes, who doesn't want to come because they've abandoned him because he stank so much. And so, and I so, but Silverberg, like, Nobody's ever recognized that before. So it's like, yes. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm back in. I'm back in. So, uh, so some, Bob and I have, have, you know, we're, we're pretty good friends. Bob has a, a tradition, uh, on the night of the Hugo Awards that he invites a bunch of people to go out to dinner with. Him. And so we usually go out to dinner before the Hugo. So it's like me and Connie Willis and Stan Robinson, sometimes George R. R. Martin, sometimes Nancy Kress. I'm not going to get to see him at uh, in Helsinki. I'm not going, but but I was there last year. We had the dinner last year. That's interesting because I haven't read The Man in the Maze, but it sounds like almost the mirror image idea of dying inside, where it's too much yeah. telepathy versus yeah, not too enough. little. Yeah. yeah, and dying inside is like, you know, it's the touchstone for me as a young writer was like, wow, you can do that. You can actually write a story in which the superpower is going away. You know, nobody, no science fiction writer would ever write about telepathy fading. That was, it was all be about having the telepathy and having a superpower. And this other thing was, I, I thought it was really great. It was, it was sort of what, what, one of the reasons why many of us love Bob from the get go. Mm. All right. So we need to start wrapping this up pretty soon, but I did want to give you a chance to talk about the Stone Coast program and just MFAs a little bit. I don't know if you got a chance to, um, check I out. Did. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and uh, so uh, I listened to a previous uh, uh, pod, one of your podcasts about professors' dis fantasy, uh, and all the women I believe I have met at ICFA, ICFA, were, as were Delawards winners. Maybe not, maybe not one of them. The two of them I had already met. So I listened to it with great, you know, uh, what shall I say? Uh, I felt bad for them because they should have come to Stone Coast. <laughs> so, uh, but, so the, the gist of this program that, uh, of the, of the podcast, which you all should go listen to, it's really good, uh, was that these women, uh, mostly in undergrads, uh, were discriminated against for the content of their fiction because they were writing fantasy. Most of them, I think, were writing fantasy. They may have been writing science fiction too. But the writing professors, oh, no, that's, that's crap. You know, you should be writing that. Um, and, and all I wanted to say as I was listening, I was, I was, I was actually driving up. I'm, 
I'm at Stone Coast. I'm about to start teaching tomorrow. So I was driving up. I just wanted to say, lack of imagination. Don't listen to that person. They're idiots. You know, um, any writer who purports to be a teacher of creative writing these days who is saying that science fiction and fantasy isn't worth writing is an idiot. Not only is an idiot, he's not paying attention to the, to the, uh, to the, to the trends in the culture. Um, so, but, but I, I absolutely recognize that there is, uh, that kind of prejudice out there. And what's interesting to me is that that prejudice exists more strongly in the creative writing part of the English departments than it does in the English department, the literature part, part of the English departments. I think we've won the war in the literature side, but I think the creative writing, uh, battle goes on. And so there's still a lot of idiots out there who will tell you that, you know, Science fiction and fantasy isn't real literature. Um, but, but, and I have to say one thing though about this, and, and, um, and that is, it's true, however, that science fiction and fantasy is harder to write and it's easier to fail at because at least, you know, in a mainstream literature, a literary fiction, you know, you basically have to do a plot and character and setting. And the setting is given to you. I mean, you know, it's your setting and plot and character are people you know or, or people you, you can imagine. But uh, a lot of science fiction and fantasy falls down in the world building part of the process. And, 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 and I can understand why people, uh, a writing teacher would say, well, I don't know. Why aren't the wizards in charge? I mean, they're magical. They can conjure. And, and the fact of the matter is, unless you sort of build a consistent world, when you're doing a fantasy story or, or a science fiction story, well, well, you know, how are, how are these matter transmitters actually working? Uh, you don't necessarily need the technology. You don't need a schematic diagram, but you need to think about what can they do and what they can't, what can't they do? One of the things we say in writing workshops is that when everything is possible, nothing is interesting. And so, uh, I think that's one of the places where, uh, certainly, uh, aspiring science fiction or fantasy writers fall down is that, that, you know, maybe they got their characters and, and, and plot all together, but their, their world building kind of is wonky and, and it throws writers out of their stories. So, uh, uh, Stone Coast is a creative writing MFA program here in Maine and it is, uh, it consists of four genres. Their notion of genre is a little bit different than ours, but our four genres are, uh, poetry, creative nonfiction, Literary fiction, or what, what we, they just call it fiction and popular fiction. So in the popular fiction side, we have a bunch of really amazing, uh, writers who, who teach science fiction, fantasy, horror, romance, historical, all the kinds of things that, that, that some kind, some people sort of push to the side and saying, oh, that's genre writing. And so detective thrillers, that kind of thing. So, I mean, we have Nancy Holder, uh, David Anthony Durham, Liz Hand, Dora Gosme. Um, and so when you come to Stone Coast, you're, you're probably going to want to write some kind of genre, and, and you come to the popular fiction track, you're probably going to write some kind of fi science fiction or fantasy or thriller or detective or whatever crime romance. Um, and, and we will take you seriously. We will, you'll get an MFA, but more important, you'll get, you know, the kind of feedback that some kinds of writing uh, programs can't give you because they just don't know 
what what's this world building thing about or or they they're going to look down their nose at the uh uh at some of the formula of of romance or or you know they they, they recoil at at some of the the ickiness of horror and so they can't talk about it well we could talk about anything that can that you can write here and it's a low residency mfa program that's right so twice a year in july and january the student body and the faculty gathers for 10 days and then uh we workshop our brains out and there's lectures and readings and 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 schmoozing and as as in any kind of you know workshoppy uh experience that workshopping this actual stories talking about the stories is very important but there's also that sort of uh you know best practices you know late at night kind of chit chat or where do you send this thing or how does Stan Robinson do it? How does Doric Oss do it? You know, kind of thing that is, is, is helpful too. It's sort of an immersive 10 days and you, you come out of it, your, your, your head is, 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 is gonna, is gonna blow up. It's, you know, I've also taught, I've taught Clarion a lot. I've taught, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 times. It's like Clarion, except it's, in, because Clarion is six weeks. This is 10 days times two times four. So um, it's it's a little bit longer than Clarion, but it's also spread out over, over more time. But it's that same sort of thing where they you're totally bombarded. You you can't. Some people don't sleep at night. They're still you know working over all the things that they've heard and and applying it to their own fiction or or their careers. And so it's it's very it's a very good thing. It's um, and so we've had some amazing people you know come out of here. You know, Mer Lafferty and Sandra McDonald, J M. Dermot and Bonnie Joe Stuffelbeam. Right now, this year, Brenda Cooper, who actually just came so she could get her ticket, her MFA. She'd already published a bunch of stuff, but, you know, like five or six novels. But, and Mikey Rosner Herman, another one who came, uh, well published writers who just wanted to get an MFA so they could teach themselves. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a very good program. I mean, after we did that fantasy verse, uh, professors versus fantasy panel, I was thinking about doing a follow up kind of best. Uh, colleges for fantasy writers sort of thing. And I, so I've been trying to gather info on that. And my take on it, is it seems like if you're writing stuff kind of more in a, a Kelly Link sort of vein, there are a reasonable number of options for you. But if you want to write like something in a George R. R. Martin, Stephen King, Ian M. Banks kind of vein, I don't yeah. know that there's too many options. No, and I, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. And I think that... Uh, um, there's no way to, to know until you actually get there. One of the ways to know, though, is to, to look at the faculty and see if anyone's published science fiction or fantasy. Uh, because there are a lot of, uh, of schools where, where there are faculty members who are actually publishing. You, uh, this is going to sound, uh, like I, like I'm not tolerant, but, but my, my, if you're, if you're an undergrad, you want to write science fiction or fantasy, you really can't get the kind of information, the kind of feedback you want, unless you're workshopping with someone who's actually publishing science fiction or fantasy or crime or romance or whatever, uh, because there are general helps, general techniques that any writing professor could give you. But, but your responsibilities, your, your remit is much more specific and detailed and you need that kind of feedback that, that only someone who knows the field and who is publishing in the field can give you. And the sad fact of the matter is a lot of people who publish, um, 
who who teach writing are lightly published, if published at all, or they're, they're published a little bit, but they're not working writers; they're teaching writers, and so um, you know this is a this is a problem with 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 all writing programs is how qualified is the writing teacher to teach you about the kind of writing you want to do? Yeah. All right. So Jim, so we are way out of time here. So um, (laughs) do you just have any, uh, any final thoughts, anything else you didn't get a chance to mention? No, I, um, I, this is going to sound sort of self-serving, but I love your podcast. I mean, I think that this whole podcast, here's the thing. Uh, Recently, you we just did the thing about the uh, uh, the, the Canadian uh, television show Prisoners of, Prisoners of Gravity. There is a bunch of people on that who no longer are who are no longer around. Who are who are uh, we? We now know what they thought about some of these things. And so uh, this podcast, podcasts like this, you know, one hopes that they are preserved because someday. Maybe not me, but some of the people you've had on are going to be important to know <laughs> what they had to say, you know. And so this sort of, I mean, it's it's a fun thing to talk to you and it's a fun thing to listen now. But I'm also thinking of the future, you know. Graduate students of the 23rd century will be like digging through these old podcasts and, oh, my God, is that what Dora Goss really thought when she was writing, uh, you know, the Alchemist's Daughter thing? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I like to say. Thank you for doing this. It's it's an it's it's not only fun, but it's also I think part of the uh, culture of of our genre. Well, yeah, and I think that's one thing that's nice that I own this podcast and I control it. It's never going to end up in a situ- situation like Prisoners of Gravity, where the um you know the the people who made it would like it to be released, but there's all sorts of legal entanglements that's making that yep. difficult. So certainly, I'll do everything I can to make sure that these episodes, especially as I was telling you, how much work I put into each one, you know. <laughs> I don't want them just disappearing. I get it. Um, I totally get it. But I have to say, Jim, I think you're important, and I'm really glad we got to hear what you had to say. So uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. It was fun. <laughs> All right. So we've been speaking with James Patrick Kelly, and his new books are Mother Go and The Promise of Space. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Yep. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to James Patrick Kelly for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jason Leffler, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.